Revelation chapter 6, we're making our way to verse 9 where we left off as you're making your way there. Maybe you heard the story. Uh, a woman went into the local drugstore. She asked for the pharmacist, and uh, the pharmacist, you know, there after she's waited a few minutes, the pharmacist comes out, greets her. He says, what can I do for you? Uh, and she says, well, I would actually like, I'm here, I, I would like to get some arsenic. And he said, arsenic? What on earth do you need arsenic for? She says, well, I want to poison my husband. He's like, I can't give you arsenic to poison your husband. She says, well, actually, I think maybe you can. She reaches into her purse, takes out a picture of his wife embracing her husband at a romantic dinner. They're actually kissing in the photograph. And the, the, the pharmacist takes one look at that. He says, well, I didn't know you had a prescription for the arsenic. <laughs> <clears throat> this morning, as we continue in Revelation chapter 6, what we, did, what we find is we find God filling his prescription for an unfaithful world. The church has been raptured. The tribulation has begun. Uh, Jesus has received the title deed of the earth, and now Jesus is opening the seals of that deed. We left off a couple of weeks ago as Jesus opened the first four seals uh, of the title deed of the earth. We saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse there, and the events were revealed that are going to transpire when the Antichrist comes. The Antichrist, we saw, will come on a white horse, as it were, promising peace, but he will soon uh, break that promise of peace, and what follows is war and famine and death, and we, we see fully a quarter of the world's population, 1.5 billion people, dying in the opening of the first four seals, and today we continue with Jesus opening the fifth seal, and I'll just tell you up front that what we're going to see today reveals the character and nature of God in a very profound way, a, a way that has a direct bearing on our lives even today, even though this is looking at a prophetic yet future event that is going to take place, get rid of that, that's going to be taking place um, when, when the church has been raptured, and hopefully our vantage point for all of this stuff will be in the throne room of heaven, yet here today in, in the days leading up to these events, the character and the nature of God will impact us today. And so we're going to look at that. We'll pick it up in verse 9. And John writes, when he, speaking of Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then a white robe was given to each of them. Uh, and it was, it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the numbers of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was uh, completed. <clears throat> and you notice there as we read that, that um, he sees the, the fifth seal open. He sees under the altar 
and he sees the souls of what he describes as those who had been slain. If you're given to taking notes, you could circle that word slain. Uh, Nearby, maybe you could write this. You could write to slaughter or to be violently butchered. That is the language that is used here. And what's given to us in the breaking of this fifth seal is a picture of what is going to be transpiring on the earth that it is going to be a time where Christians are hatefully murdered. Uh, All those who stand for Jesus Christ, they are hatefully murdered. They're going to be butchered, uh, the, the text says. Now, in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 24... Um, Jesus taught this identical sequence of events. I'm going to put it on the screen for you in a few minutes, but I'll set it up this way. Basically, um, it, it's in what is known as his Olivet Discourse. Jesus was teaching you know, in, you know, near the temple there in Jerusalem, and he takes his disciples up onto the Mount of Olives. That's why they call it the Olivet Discourse. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, the vantage point is stunning. It's striking when you're on the Mount of Olives. It's the same place where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It looks across the Kidron Valley uh, there, and you see the East Gate um, where Jesus will return. And then you see up onto the Temple Mount and, and, and all, and, and, and so you see Jerusalem there. And in Jesus' day, when he takes his disciples there, it's not the, the, the Muslim mosque that is sitting up on the Temple Mount, which you will see today. What was sitting in Jesus' day was this incredible temple, which in fact was still being constructed during this time. It was largely completed, but upon its ultimate completion, it was like 600 yards long of a building. It was huge, gargantuan, six football fields in length. It was so spectacular, this temple that was established there, the Jewish temple. <clears throat> People would come from all over just to marvel at this temple. These great white marble stones used to construct it, ornate gold and so on. So much white there up on the Temple Mount that from a distance it looked like it was covered in snow. And so there they are and, and, and all and they go across, Jesus takes them up on this temple mount, and there in this uh, view, and in the, the, um, in the looking at it, basically the, uh, the, the disciples start pointing out all the buildings to Jesus. And, uh, and as they're looking at, you know, pointing out all the, these buildings, Jesus began to describe the destruction that was gonna come. And, he, and, and basically he told him, look, the day is coming when all of this is going to be destroyed and not one stone is going to be standing on another. And, and in about 30 years, a little over 30 years from when Jesus said that, in 70 AD, his prophecy was fulfilled. That temple was completely destroyed. And, and what had happened was the Jews were rebelling against Rome. They were losing. They retreated into the temple. And so the, the command was given for the soldiers to go in and take them out. But the command was also given, hey, don't, don't hurt the temple. It was so magnificent. They didn't want to do anything to the temple. But one of the soldiers, uh, supposedly in a drunken fit, threw a torch in and he torched the whole thing. And as the temple burned, uh, all of the interior, obviously the stones don't burn, but all of the wood structure and all, and all this ornate gold melted, and the gold melted in between the cracks of the stones. And so in their zeal to get all of the, the gold out from between the stones, 
they utterly destroyed the temple and Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. Not one stone stood upon another. The destruction was so great to this day, they can't even fully identify the foundation of this thing. In fact, the wailing wall where, where you know, the, the culmination of the, the central, central focus of Jews today to go and pray, this holy site represents one of the, one of the foundational walls that, that made up the foundation of the temple, but nothing above ground stood. And so as Jesus said this to his disciples, hey, you know, day's coming, and one of these stones is going to be standing on another one there in his Olivet Discourse. They asked him three questions. They said, when is the temple going to be destroyed? They asked him, what would be the sign of his coming? And then they asked him, what would be the signs at the end of the age? And so now I'll put it on the screen for you, Matthew 24, verses four through eight. Listen to what Jesus says. It says, and Jesus answered, and he said to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, he says, <coughs> pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, these verses that Jesus spoke in Matthew 24, they correspond with the first four verses of Revelation chapter 6. That the Antichrist, he arrives on a white horse, he, he promises peace, uh, but he deceives many, um, and it's followed by wars and pestilence and ultimately death. And then Jesus continues in the very next verse, Matthew 24, verse 9, he says this, he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my Namesake. Now, the disciples certainly experienced this themselves. They, they all died martyrs' deaths, with the exception of John, who was boiled in oil. And when he didn't die, they banished him to the island of Patmos, where he received the vision and wrote Revelation for us. But even so, they all were hated. They all were intensely persecuted. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. Certainly, that came to pass. You know, the Bible promises all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. It's not one of the promises in the Bible that, that we, you know, put in needlepoint and frame or put in a poster and stick up on our walls and claim, like, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We like that one. We don't go, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But it's a fact. We will. But what Jesus was speaking about specifically, hey, in verse 9, it corresponds to the fifth seal that we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 6. And take note of the three words that Jesus uses there in Matthew 24 verse 9. He uses the word tribulation, he uses the word kill, and he uses the word hatred. Literally, that word tribulation, it means crushing anguish. It's associated with great distress. He uses the word kill, which means to literally distinguish, to extinguish and destroy. And, and the word hated, it means to thoroughly hate and detest. This isn't I hate broccoli, although maybe you thoroughly and detest broccoli. This is like I hate Adolf Hitler. This is like 
thoroughly detest and hate that kind of hatred. And combined, here's the picture that Jesus is painting. He's saying, listen, during the tribulation, during the opening of the fifth seal, Revelation chapter 6, it's going to be open season on Christians, baby. It is going to be a time of tribulation and persecution that, that the world knows nothing about. And it, 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 just, it just intensifies. Now, we have a small taste of this now. You know, uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, he said this. He said, woe to those who call good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And this is the world that we live in today. I mean, by and large, we live in a society where they call good evil and they call evil good. I mean, you know, I'm, and I, I may offend some people with this, but I'm sorry. You know, when I see millions of women marching across the United States and the poster rallying point for them is the right to murder children, that's where I get off. And I say, you know what, that, it's a, you know, so, so I'm going, to, I'm going to, to participate in the war against women by allowing you to kill fully 50% of the, of the women in the womb. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's ridiculousness. It is absolute insanity, and we live in an insane world today. And, and so, and if you want to send me an email about that, go ahead, bring it on. I, I can hit my delete button quicker than anybody. So, <clears throat> so, this, so we live in a world that's upside down. But, but what Jesus is talking about is, is nothing compared to the taste that we, that we have of that right now. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says when the Antichrist comes, that he's going to make war against the saints, and he's going to prevail against them. And at that point, you, you hear that, and you go, well, wait a minute. Didn't the Bible say something about you know, the gates of hell not prevailing against us? Absolutely it does. Jesus was talking to Peter, asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they're like, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. He's like, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter, he goes, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh, hasn't, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father who's in heaven, he revealed this to you. And I say to you, Peter, that you, the, I say that you are Peter, a little stone. And on this stone, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And contrary to, to what some may think and teach, Jesus was not talking about the Apostle Peter. He wasn't saying he's going to build his church on the Apostle Peter. He said he's going to build his church on the rock or the profession that Jesus is the Christ, <coughs> the Son of the living God. And so he said, I say that you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. And then he said, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. What was he talking about? He's talking about his church. And so yes, the promise is that the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against his church. But listen, the events of Revelation chapter 6 are after the church is raptured. And so what's happening here is that yes, we're dealing with tribulation saints. These are people who were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. But listen, the tribulation saints aren't spared from wrath as the church is spared from wrath. And so what's going to happen is they are going to suffer persecution. But listen, understand, even in their death, these tribulation saints that we see here in Revelation 6 under the altar there, 
even in their death, hell really hasn't overcome them, hasn't prevailed against them. Jesus said this, he said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, because in the tribulation, Christians are going to have an awful choice. And the awful choice, man, they got to pick their poison. On the one hand, they, they either choose Jesus Christ, and in siding with Jesus Christ, they face Im- unimaginable torture and destruction, slaughter, wholesale slaughter, at the hands of the Antichrist, or they side with the Antichrist and they face the eternal destruction and damnation from Jesus Christ. So during the tribulation, it's pick your poison. You're either going to choose Jesus and suffer harshly for it, or you're going to choose Antichrist and suffer eternally for it. And so Jesus opens this fifth seal, and we see now these martyred saints. They're under the altar. This is a reference to Old Testament where the blood of the sacrifice was poured out under the altar in the worship of God and they cry out, how long until you, ju- uh, in, until you judge and avenge us, God? How long is it gonna be, be until you judge and until you avenge us? Now, this doesn't sound like a very Christian prayer, does it? I mean, think about the first martyr of the church after Jesus, who was it? It was Stephen, They stoned him to death, and as he was dying, did he cry out and say, how long until you judge and avenge them? No, what did he say? He said, don't hold this sin against them. And he, in fact, was modeling Jesus, who dying on the cross, they're spitting in his face, mocking him unto unto his death. You saved others, come down and save yourself, you know, kind of thing. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so now we see these tribulation saints and they're crying out, how long until you judge and avenge us? And you go, well, gosh, that doesn't sound very Christian. Listen, the age of grace is over. That, that prayer is a, is, a, is a godly prayer during the age of grace, but the age of grace has passed. And so this prayer for, for vengeance, it's not them asking, like, I got a personal vendetta and I want you to go after them. No, they, they, their heart, it's a correct prayer. It's coming from a surrendered heart. If you look at that, what do they say? They say, how long until you avenge us, O Lord? Now, if you have the ESV translation, you see that O Lord is actually translated sovereign Lord. And it's actually one word in the Greek that they use here, it's the word despotes. Despotes. We, you think of the word despot. What is a despot? It's an absolute ruler. And we, in an earthly context, it has a, it has a negative context. We think of, you know, Pol Pot, you know, uh, and his regime there in, in Asia, killing millions of people in the killing fields. Or we think of Adolf Hitler and his absolute rule and, and you know, the, we call them despots and um, despicable and all of these things. But despot actually means supreme ruler. It's the one who has all power, all authority, the one who's in total control. This is the title that these saints ascribe to the Lord. They're praying to God, the, the absolute ruler. And listen, by implication, the one whose judgment is righteous. 
Paul said this to the Romans in Romans 12, 19. He said, beloved, <clears throat> do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this isn't in my notes, but nice place for a detour here. As it comes to my mind, you know, a lot of times we will have that attitude. Somebody gets under our skin. Somebody wrongs us, and, and we, just want, we just want to see vengeance, man. Sometimes we take vengeance into our own hands. Sometimes it's just a matter of, God, I, I want you to be vengeful, and I want you to wipe them out. Maybe, you know, you, you remember the story in the Old Testament where God, he, he shows up and uh, he talks to this, this guy named Jonah. Remember Jonah and the whale, right? How did Jonah end up in a whale? Because God told him to go to Nineveh to preach to them the message that he was going to give to them. Jonah being a prophet of God, Jonah didn't want to go. Now, Nineveh, is modern-day Iraq. That's base, the basic geographic area. And, and you know, if, if somebody said to you, hey, I want you to go as a missionary to Iraq, how many of us would, would like, be excited about that? A couple of you, maybe. The rest of us would go, well, I don't want to go. And why would it be that we wouldn't want to go? Because we'd be afraid of whether we were going to come back. Be like, yeah, I'll go to Iraq as long as I can have an M50 with me and a, and a platoon of guys, I'll go. But I, I, other than that, you know, me and my Bible, I'm not so excited about, I don't know if I'm gonna be coming back kind of thing. Well, that was not Jonah's heart. Jonah wasn't afraid of the people so much as he hated them. And what we see in the story is that, you know, God tells him to go. He jumps on a ship going the opposite direction. God's like, no, that's not what I told you to do. So he gets in there. And then when he's there, he goes up and he, he, he's like, fine. So he goes up, he preaches to everybody, three days and you're all dead. God bless you, you know. <clears throat> and then he goes up on the hill, camps himself up on the hill. And what's he doing up there? He's watching for God to destroy them is what he's watching for. Now, he knows in his heart of heart that God isn't going to destroy him, and he's going to admit that later on in the story. He goes up on the hill, and he sets himself up there, and he's just watching for them to get destroyed. And God doesn't destroy him. God forgives him. And now he's mad. And he goes to God, and he's like, I knew you were going to do that. You're this merciful God, and, and I wanted him to die. And maybe just... Time out here, pause button. Maybe right now you got somebody who you're thinking, they just, God just needs to judge that person. And you have to understand that's not the heart of God. So Jonah, there he is. He's sitting up on the hillside. And God, you know, as he's waiting for them to get fried, he's frying in the sun and God causes this plant to grow up and come, you know, this leaf thing comes over this vine and the leaf covers him, gives him shade. And he gets this relief from the sun. And he's like, oh, you know, this is great. And then all of a sudden God strikes the leaf and he kills it. It withers, it dies. And now Jonah's all upset. And God goes up and he shows up to Jonah and he's like, what, you're copping an attitude because I killed the plant? Yeah, he is right for you to be angry. Absolutely, it's right for me to be angry. You killed the plant and, and, and all. God, and God says, so you're all worried about a plant that I killed that's here today and gone tomorrow, and you could care less 
about the thousands of people down there in Nineveh who don't know the right hand from their left hand and going to hell. Just story just sort of ends there with Noah cooking. It's like, how's he going to respond? How are you going to respond? See, because this picture here is these saints, they have been killed. Now, get the dynamic. <clears throat> the dynamic is this. The church has been raptured. God's pouring out his wrath, but God's not done. He still sees an opportunity to reap a harvest. Jesus said to the disciples in Luke chapter 19, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the heart of God. Jesus told a, Matthew, a parable in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 13. says another parable he put forth to them, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. And so the servants of the owner came and they said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And the servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? He's saying, you want us to go rip out all the weeds? And listen to what he says. He says, but he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat from them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Listen, God's heart is for the lost. And so right now, these martyrs are given rest and they're given assurance and they're told to wait until what? Until all who will be saved are saved. Notice there verse 11. A white robe was given to them. This is the symbol of God's righteousness. Hey, you died in faith for me. You're, you're righteous. You're clothed in righteousness. I give you a white robe. And, and what's he say? It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. God says, look, I'm not done. There's people that need to be saved. There's still a harvest yet for me to reap. Here's the application for us today. God does not give up until every last opportunity has been exhausted. He doesn't give up until every last opportunity has been exhausted. And the point is, is that we should never give up on anybody. We should never get, we have a tendency as, as people just to kind of write people off, don't we? In the fire department, um, when, when there's a, a vegetation fire and then the, the units are dispatched, <clears throat> one of their primary objectives is to save lives and property. So they'll go ahead of the fire as it's burning and <clears throat> they'll try and evacuate people and they'll try and save structures before they're burned. 
Now, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a big fad, commercial, uh, you know, housing fad, to where people would put wood shake shingle roofs on their house. Remember that? Now, firemen have a word for those kind of houses. You know what they call them? Losers. And so if they roll up to a house and it had a wood shake shingle roof, they wouldn't even bother defending it. Because they were just a stick of kindling waiting to go. So they're like, it's not worth the effort. And sometimes we see people as losers. And we go, they ain't worth the effort. And the lesson that we take away here, one of the lessons from Revelation chapter 6, is that, is that God doesn't see people that way. And even though he said, all right, it's time. I pulled my church out. All right, it's time. I'm pouring my wrath out on an unrepentant earth. God knows that there are still people to be harvested. Listen, all of us, God willing, we have been sharing our faith and what's going to happen in the last days is that when he takes us to be in heaven, there's going to be a lot of empty houses, a lot of empty work cubicles, a lot of abandoned cars. There is going to be a big absence and don't you know that that's going to be a powerful witness to the world during the the time of the tribulation. People are going to go, wow, They said a day would come when they wouldn't be here anymore. How do we explain millions of Christians all over the world disappearing? Maybe what they said is true. And so you're going to see a great, I believe, revival of saints during this time, but they're going to live a very difficult existence. Listen, what we have to understand is that there's power in our testimony. Even though we struggle in our lives, we still have an impact. Paul said this to the Romans. He said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And this is a great description of the tribulation saints. They're going to be sheep for the slaughter, but God's going to be using them to minister to people. Paul goes on. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen very careful to me, please. One of the values that we have here at the church, and we have, we have nine core values as a church, and these values shape and inform everything that we do. They form the culture of our church. And, and so one of our foundational values is missional living. And, and, and we, we, we put it this way. We value missional living, living out a genuine faith, intentionally sharing that faith with everyone. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, look again at that key word in our value statement on missional living. We value missional living, living out a genuine faith and intentionally sharing our faith with everyone. 
That word intentional, Webster's defines it this way, something done with intention or design, something done on purpose. Synonyms to that word are actions that are designed, actions that are planned, actions that are deliberate. Let me ask you a question, application question. Do you have a plan to share your faith? Are you deliberate about sharing the hope that you have? When Brenda and I moved out to Temecula, um, all the kids lived at home. We, bought, we, we, we were living in Menifee. We bought a house out here in Temecula in 2006 and, and moved from Menifee to Temecula. Uh, we've been out you know, in, in the valley since 89, but, but didn't move here to Temecula until 2006. At that time, all my kids lived at home. So I, I bought a house you know, that had enough room for all my kids. And then wouldn't you know it, right after we bought the house, our, my kids start getting married. And within a couple of years of buying the house, they'd all gotten married and moved out. So there's me and Brenda sitting in this big old house and, you know, heating bills, cooling, all that stuff. I'm like, this is just a bad retirement plan for us to pay for this big old house for the two of us. So even though it was our, it was our dream home, we thought we were going to be in it for years, we ended up selling it a couple of years ago. And, um, and so you know, you put in a change of address and all this stuff, but my mail from time to time still goes over there. Well, recently Brenda ordered something on Amazon and it was kind of important and she was waiting for it, wasn't showing up, and so she tracked it and she's discovered well, they delivered it to Channel Street. And so it's like, doggone it. So, um, so we go over there, nobody's home, so we put a little slip in their mailbox to tell them, hey, you know, and we used to live here and, you know, if you get a package, whatever... Well, the gal ends up calling us, wonderful lady, just a great lady, really nice. We went over there, and she invites me in, and I go, and Brenda's waiting in the car in the driveway, and I go in, and, and I'm just, you know, reminiscing, looking at the old house, going, oh, man, I wish I'd never sold this place. Anyway, so there I am, and she gives me this stuff, and, and we exchange some pleasantries, and I, I get in the car, and I go to leave, and, uh, and, and she says, well, did you invite her to church? I'm like, no, we were just talking. It was just kind of a casual question. She's like, you blew at Leavenworth. She goes, you think our, our, our package just randomly got sent over there? There's a reason. They, she got our, and, and so I, I got to admit, I got all defensive. I'm like, well, did you share the gospel with a guy that, you know, at the package store yesterday? <clears throat> what I didn't tell her was that the Holy Spirit, knowing I'm going to preach this message, is going to me, you're an idiot. You know, you can tell everybody, oh, do you have a plan to share your faith? Well, do you, Pastor Ted, have a plan to share your, I'm like, no, I've totally blew it. My wife will be attending the next service. I, I probably skipped that whole illustration, but. <laughs> <laughs> Living missionally. And, and, and you know, just, just, a, just a humble come to Jesus confession, true confession. We, I don't always do it, but listen, we should. We should. And, and, and so, you know, just a huge takeaway here, man, is that there ain't no one more missional than Jesus Christ. And he tells these saints, you know what? You chill. I got you. You're covered in righteousness. You just be in peace and wait. But I still got some other people I got to tend to. Who do you have to tend to? Well, now Jesus opens the sixth seal, verse 12. John says, I looked. And when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. 
And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And listen to what they say. Who is able to stand? Now as we're going to see, these events parallel the events that we're going to read about in Revelation 16. And there we're going to read about the seven bowl judgments that are coming. And it could be that these are parallel events, parallel judgments that are going to be poured out. Um, Cataclysmic upheavals, great earthquakes, uh, islands being moved. Um, But what I want you to take note of here is that the first four seals that are opened, those are all events that involve the actions of wicked men. But this sixth seal that is open, listen, this is all God. God acts alone. And it's curious just to speculate on the mechanics of this destruction. We see stars falling and we see this great earthquake and islands moved. And you're like, what on earth is that speaking of? We have in Revelation, you know, this, this, it, 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 it's done in, in, in image form. It's communicated in, in stories that, that have imagery to them. And so we're like, what exactly is that? And all we can do is speculate. We don't exactly know. Some people go, well, you know, the illustration of the stars falling and so on. This is like nuclear warfare. And the sky rolling back as a scroll. You know, the, 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 you know they'll say, if you, if you look at nuclear weapons being detonated from space, the atmosphere actually looks like it opens up, like, it, like it's a, rolling back as a scroll. Other people have speculated this, and I find this fascinating, that this idea of the stars falling, that what it's possibly describing is a great meteor shower. And that in the context and course of these meteors that are hitting the earth, that one of them is such of such a size that when it impacts the earth, it actually causes the earth to to turn on its axis. And in fact, this actually, they speculate and hypothesize this has already happened. They found some some, um, uh, some. woolly uh, mammoths that were in Siberia that were encased in ice and they and they're there fully formed not decayed uh, th- those that found these mammoths they cut them open they fed the meat to their dogs um, and they found tropical vegetation in their stomachs and and what's hypothesized is well you know if a meteor hit the earth at just the right angle and it was just the right size and they 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 cite the great meteor crater in Arizona they say that that actually would have done it that if it hit at just the right angle what would have happened is the earth would have turned on its axis and it would have taken suddenly these mammoths that lived in a warm climate shoot, now they live in a cold climate and they would have been quick frozen just like we found them It actually could explain Noah's flood too. So this is all hypothesis and we don't really know, but there are some interesting clues that, gosh, maybe this is like what happened. 
And people say, well, you know, if that happened, the earth would be turned on its axis and would actually have a wobble in it. And they go, well, guess what? The earth is actually tilted 23 degrees and it actually has a wobble in it. Well, there's, there's an example. It's already happened. So, you know, people say, well, that's maybe what's going to happen here. We don't know, but here's what we do know. God's wrath is being poured out. Whatever the mechanism, this is going to be an incredible time of destruction, of shaking. <clears throat> and the fear and the terror is going to be unreal from the, from the events that are happening when God himself pours out his wrath. Now, let me ask you a question here at this point. If you have ever been through a time of incredible shaking, something, something catastrophic happens in your life, what does it typically drive you to do? Typically drives you to turn to God, doesn't it? I mean, September 11th, I'll tell you what, what we saw on September 11th was that the, the, the attendance at church doubled overnight. We were packed. Why? Because people were like, my life is out of control, this world is out of control, help us, God. You might expect that, but no, that's not what we read about here. The kings of the earth, the great man, the rich man, slaves, free, everybody hides themselves in the caves and in the rocks, which you would expect if great meteors are hitting the earth and so on. But rather than cry out and say, help us, God, what do they do? They say, mountains fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Hide us from God. They run from God. They turn from God. And so two things to note here. They know it's God. That's clear in what they say. And rather than repent, rather than cry out, they would rather die than repent. Listen, the application today is, is simple. That as time passes, the human heart grows colder and it grows harder. This is why the, the writer of Hebrews says, I think it's Paul, says this. He says, you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you, and here it is, will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. The more time passes by, you become more and more hardened here if you're here today and i ask you the question look if this went down right now if god right now had said i'm going to bring all of this to pass and there's a there's a a, a huge meteor that's going to it's going to hit temecula and and all this is going to unfold and and you don't get you're not going to make it to the end of this day and by the way it doesn't even have to be something that you know we would say far-fetched. It ain't far-fetched. It's coming. But, I mean, it could be, you, you know, you step off a curb and get hit by a bus today. Where are you going to spend eternity? Has your life been of such that you have been hardening your heart and hardening your heart and hardening your heart and putting off what you know to be true, that God is on the throne, that your life mocks him, that if you were to drop dead today, you're going to give an account to him? The Bible says it's... it's, it's, it's it's appointed unto every man to die once and then to face judgment. There are two guarantees in your life. You will die and you will face judgment when you die. And so today you have to do business with that and go, have I been hardening my heart? Because listen, the more you harden your heart, 
the more it will be hardened and the harder it will be to turn to the Lord. Isaiah the prophet said this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will abundantly, he will have mercy on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Listen, God loves you desperately. And so we have one of two points of business to do with God this morning. Number one, we have to answer whether or not I've been faithful to be a witness for Jesus Christ as he's commanded. We, 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 we have to answer the question before the throne of God, am I living missionally? The second thing we have to answer is, am I hardening my heart? Is my heart becoming colder to the Lord? Because I have to recognize the more I do that, the more and more dangerous it gets. The, 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 more, the longer it gets to where I can where I can be able to, to turn and have the hope of forgiveness from God. 